Good afternoon and welcome to the business community on Calon FM. With me, Heather Noble. And me, Tracy Jones. And this week we're looking at a situation that a lot of people are finding themselves in, and that's going back to work after a long break, maybe after furlough, or maybe even just a long time working from home instead of in the office. And we're going to try and look at it from the point of view of the employee and also of the employer. So first off, I just want to do the legal bit, and that's um, legally where you stand if you don't want to go back to work. And then we're, we're going to soften it a little bit as well. But legally, um, your employer doesn't have to agree to um, allow you to take time off or holiday, but you could ask if you're feeling it difficult going back to work, um, you could ask for holiday or unpaid leave. It does end up with a situation where you might be facing disciplinary action if you just refuse to go to work with no good reason. And you could ask to work flexibly, working from home or working different hours. Um, you have the right to ask for that, but your employer doesn't have to agree to it. Uh, they, you know, it has to make business and economic sense for them. So actually, legally, that's about where you can go. The rest of this conversation is about how employers can work flexibly with employees who might be suffering with the after effects of being furloughed or working from home for a long time. The other legal thing to mention is that all employers must ensure that the workplace is safe under the Health and Safety at Work Act that employers need to have undertaken a risk assessment to identify any potential harm and what reasonable steps they're going to take to prevent any harm to their employees. So if you are concerned about returning to the workplace for safety reasons, then you should speak to your employer about the steps that are being taken and hopefully they can help to allay your fears. So Heather, what are your thoughts on this returning to work after a long period away from the workplace? I think it's a really complex and complicated situation not least because we've not really encountered this before so everybody's treading a path that they've never trodden before and they're kind of second guessing a lot of you know how things might work on the face of it you know originally yeah everybody gets you know people get paid 80 percent of their salary to stay at home and then when it's all over they just come back to work and of course we're learning that that's not the case You've mentioned the safety element and any employer has a duty of care to make sure that the workplace is safe. Now, if that's when you're in a heavy industry um, sector, you know, that's perhaps really understandable and really tangible. What makes this workplace safe? But when you start to think about a very risk free work environment and you introduce the virus, it's it changes the it changes the mindset again. So there's people with the safety element, there's people with, um, and we'll come on to talk about sort of general mental health anxiety around just going back into the workplace when they haven't been there for a long time. And then, of course, there are people who may be shielding or living with somebody who is shielded or they may have responsibility for elderly relatives or, or children. And actually, now that the kids you know, once the kids have finished school, then that adds another dimension. And I, I've, I've experienced firsthand examples where normally during the school holidays, the children would go to the grandparents. But because of the situation with COVID, that's not viable. That's not possible. That's 
that you know that's deemed risky for whatever reason uh, and that really it starts to get complicated then because we're kind of asking people to choose between potentially the safety of their nearest and dearest and coming back to work and, and trying to find you know a, a new way of working so i think it, it is really difficult um, and i think it has to be dealt with on a case-by-case -case basis yes and the cipd is is urging businesses to think carefully before they bring their people back to the workplace and they mention three key tests that the business needs to consider is it essential so if people can continue to work from home you know why why don't you consider allowing them to work from home is it sufficiently safe? You've mentioned the duty of care, so they need to make sure that all of the measures are in place um, to ensure that their workforce are safe. And is it mutually agreed? Now, obviously, I've mentioned before about the legal aspects and disciplinary action can come into play. But all of the experts and, and all of the guidance that we're getting is suggesting that businesses really need to be fair, reasonable flexible as much as they can so communicating and and listening to people's concerns is really really encouraged yeah and quite right too i mean in any difficult situation communication has to be has to be the answer i think the part-time furlough scheme that they brought in i think that has been helpful in many respects because as you do to start with for a lot of organizations there was no work to be done because nobody was doing anything, nobody was buying anything, nobody was going anywhere, etc. Now we're starting to see that, you know, there might be certain parts of the business that are now operational. So the ability to bring people back part time is really helpful. So it's not an either or you're, you're either furloughed or you're not. It's you can be part time on furloughed. And that adds some more flexibility and hopefully some more sort of negotiation. But where it is really challenging is if you've got a if you've got a load of work for people to do, and those people are reluctant and or refusing to come back to work, you're then torn between: Do I bring somebody else in to do their work until they are willing to come back to work? And um, what are the financial implications there? Um, if I've been making their their salary up how much notice do I need to give them to tell them that I'm not going to be able to do that anymore because we're going to go back to the government sliding scale. It, get, it gets very, very complicated. And in the back of your mind then has to be the whole, this isn't constructive dismissal, you know, bring somebody else in to do some of your work because you're not willing to come back to work. It's very, very complicated. And I would suggest that anybody who is trying to find their way through all of this, seek some professional guidance because the popular thinking is that the law will find on the way of the employee so as an employer you just need to be hyper vigilant and make sure that you're not causing yourself problems further down the line i think so i also had a look at um the effects of um social isolation and i found a great article uh, aatcomment.org.uk and the title is the psychologist guide to returning to work and i hadn't quite figured on how much social socialized isolation put my teeth back in before i say that again how much social isolation can have such a debilitating effect on both minds and bodies so this article just lists a few of the things that social isolation can cause so social anxiety low morale 
change in working and behaviour patterns, impact on communication, low self-esteem, reluctancy to return to an office environment, problems integrating, low mood, possible depression, less likely to deal with stressful situations, may encounter problems in processing information, which can lead to difficulties in decision making, and memory storage and recall can be impacted. So if all of this is going on in your workplace and you've encouraged workers to come back and they're suffering from all of these things, you also need to consider how that's going to impact on their work as well as their long-term health because the physical toll of high blood pressure, increased heart rate, stress hormones and inflammation in the body can actually then make your workforce susceptible to illness because it's fighting off like the stress it's like a virus but it's not a virus Um, and they can also face symptoms of PTSD that has been warned as well so whereas working from home can seem very positive for some people it can also be a very isolating experience for others also you might find that they've if a furloughed employee has been off for any length of time they may have lost some confidence uh, be suffering from anxiety or uncertainty may even be worried about whether they're still going to have a job because the future of the business is uncertain okay the business owner might feel exactly the same way as well so like you said heather it's not easy but i think if employers are aware that some of this anxiety and the social isolation can run quite deep and, and can affect everybody in very different ways what you want to do is try and minimize the impact on your business you don't want to um, you know have staff making poor decisions or you know not being able to integrate or communicate properly so I think it's a very fine balance and on top of all of that uh, we need to make sure that the managers are equipped to deal with this and also we have to be mindful of the people who have not been furloughed people who may have been, have been working throughout and that their experience of coronavirus and and the lockdown phase will be very different to that of the people who've been furloughed and they could have been suffering all of the anxiety as well and be you know facing burnout there's so many different ways that we're having to deal with a very different situation to anything we've dealt with before so the guidance is do lots of training provide lots of support and be flexible and bear in mind mental physical and emotional health for all of your employees and look after your own as well if you're a business owner dealing with all of this acknowledge that you might need some support yourself as well we'll put links to the articles that we've discussed in this part of the show and anything else that we talk about on our website which is the business.community in other news this week i've got a retail story that kind of bucks the trend in terms of what's been happening in the in the world of retail we've heard lots of um store closures and some of the high street you know great um great stores that you know have been part of our high street for a long long time are starting to dwindle and disappear which is really really sad but we talked a while ago about pivoting well ocado the online grocer uh hasn't so much pivoted has absolutely maximised the opportunity in terms of of the delivery service and online shopping. They were really struggling 
to hold their own uh, with um, Marks and Spencers claiming that the Marks and Spencers delivery element claiming and, and stealing some avocados um, business but that seems to have, have, have kind of turned full circle. Uh, Ocado joined forces with Marks and Spencer and has been delivering massive massive amounts of shopping through this period. Uh, so watch this space and then at the other side of the, the food retail market again bucking the trend um, an article on the BBC website where Lidl is going to be uh, has revealed plans that they're going to be opening a shop a week until Christmas. This is in the UK. They'll be creating a thousand jobs, and then beyond that, uh, they will be by the end of 2023 opening another hundred stores, creating 4,000 more jobs, and that will bring their presence in the UK to 1,000 stores. Uh, again. You, you know they have joy, enjoyed success but any bus time means means boom for somebody uh, and and it seems that little is deemed to be huge value for money and the the um the price savvy purchaser is is finding what they want in little so watch this space in terms of extra stores what have you got tracy so I've seen um, some research published by O2 this week uh, that talks about the number of businesses that have been launched since the 24th of March. So since the start of this whole lockdown thing. And I was absolutely blown away by the figures. OK, so um, in Manchester, um, 4,014 new companies were launched um, between 24th of March and the end of June. So that's one for every 143 people in Manchester. Blimey, in London, that's immense. No, in London. So Manchester were top. London was second. So although 51,937 businesses were incorporated, that's only one for every 172 people. And Leeds, Glasgow and Bristol also saw lots of new companies springing up. So the study says that, um, that the entrepreneurs' confidence has been building in this time. So in April, 42,254 companies were formed in the UK and 58,892 in May and a staggering 77,575 in June. That's just so amazing. Is this, is this is this as a result of? Uh, I'm not sure it would be of people losing their jobs, but recognizing that you can you can operate a business from home and that's that's doable. And I'm not totally sure, but there's a number of um, um, further number of bits of further analysis. So eight thousand more than eight thousand of these were construction companies. Okay. Um, there were 2,646 hairdressing and beauty companies. So maybe they just realised that there'd be a, a big long waiting list to have a haircut after three months. Um, and 3,448 takeaway food shops and mobile food stands. That makes sense. Yeah. I can see that because of, the, you know, all the restaurants and, and, and 
cafes being closed that, that I can see the, yeah. the logic there I'm not sure about the hair though no and I guess that I mean these figures aren't completely indicative of a brand new business these are businesses that were incorporated so mm. it could be that a number of those were operating as sole traders um, before this and they've just incorporated in this time but the, the figures were just astounding there and um, pleasing to see that it was Manchester that seems to be the entrepreneur capital yeah yeah good on Manchester the the northern powerhouse we've talked about that yes we've talked about that before can I can I share with you a story that caught my eye and it set me off on a bit of a I don't know a dream uh in the evening standard in their lifestyle section they uh, reported that the mayor oh, no the prime minister i beg your pardon of barbados is inviting people to come and work remotely for a year in barbados as part of a scheme that they're calling barbados welcome stamp and essentially uh, they're working on the basis that international arrivals could live on the island and work remotely for up to a year to try and combat the issue that tourism has been has been suffering out there and 40 percent of its gdp and 30 percent of its workforce works in the tourism industry they've only had 98 cases of coronavirus and seven deaths and they are and they opened their uh, borders to international visitors on the 12th of july uh, you have to you have to wear a, a, a face mask when you, face mask when you arrive um, and present a negative corona test result and then you can just live there and work well, there we talked Worth about um, employees asking their employees for some flexible working <laughs> i wonder if you went to your employer and said that i'd like to work from barbados please why would they say no <laughs> if, you, if you've just been working from mold for 16 <laughs> weeks well <laughs> i just saw it and i thought that you know in, in that little sort of fantasy world that i live in that sounded quite nice i wondered if i could pull it off okay well maybe a little closer to home then can i tell you a story about cardiff so i was reading this week about cardiff's hospitality zone and this is an outdoor and covered eating area uh, this is running along Castle Street in Cardiff and it's part of wider measures from the council to support the hospitality sector. And this is a great idea. Um, visitors to the hospitality hub will be able to order food and drinks for delivery to their table in the zone from a selection of cafes and restaurants in the city centre via an app. Brilliant. Uh, they're Brilliant. also providing new cycle paths as well. Um, but the Cardiff Council said that the new outdoor area could be ready for use by the end of the month. So that's very exciting news. And we've talked about the changing face of the high streets a number of times. And I think this, you know, could be the way forward for a lot of cities. They're wanting to, to bring more people into the city. It might not be retail shops. It might be hospitality that can do it. Um, just as a reminder, um, bars, restaurants and cafes have been able to reopen this week in Wales, a little bit behind England there, um, for outdoor service this week. Um, and if the figures continue to 
look good then the Welsh Government will allow them to open indoors from the 3rd of August. But hopefully the weather will be nice and everybody will be wanting to sit outside in Castle Street in Cardiff. Where it's wonderful that they've taken, the council have taken that initiative. I'm involved with um, with with um, a town, a, a business improvement district uh, locally, and we've been looking at how we can um, um, act as a sort of conduit to make something like that happen. And where it gets really tricky is who has responsibility for what, and whose whose public liability insurance it comes under, and the safety in terms of you know food being brought from from one place to another and so the fact that the town the city council have got behind it and have made it happen i just think is fantastic and i hope that you know in in, in the wider country uh people are able to do more of that because it happens it happens on the continent almost automatically so it would be great for us to be able to do more of that. I think that's a brilliant story. Yeah. Where was that? Where did you see that? I saw that in um, businesslive.co.uk. You're listening to the business community on Callan FM. And in the discovery section this week, I've got, it seems to be, I've got a bit of a focus on mental health. So I'll start off with a webinar that I attended last week. It was organised by Wrexham Council. It was free to attend and it was delivered by an organisation called State of Mind. Their website is stateofmindsport.org and just over an hour long and it was a bit of a taster into the type of work that they do mental health awareness training and they started off by doing this training for sports clubs um, apparently they've done it for all the professional rugby teams they've done a lot of um, football teams and then they've started to go to businesses and that they said at the start that they tend to target alpha male businesses and I guess I can see why. If you look at the lineup, they're mostly middle-aged ex-sports people. And they tell their own personal stories as well. It was incredibly moving. And I, I would just say that I couldn't make eye contact with the person I was sat in the webinar with because I felt that moved. I thought, okay, I'm just going to look at them just yet while I just calm myself down because they were deeply personal stories. And so if they impacted me like that, then I imagine that there would be some value for a number of different workforces just to hear it from somebody who you might expect to be rough and tough and you know just get on with it be a man about it that sort of mm -hmm, idea mm -hmm. so the two presenters for the webinar i attended were danny skullthorpe and phil vivas and i'd just like to say that they were absolutely brilliant and if you get the opportunity to listen to any webinars that they do and um, then i would highly recommend them and the second one is a book that I was going to review last week, but it got overtaken by the Harvard Business Review. By book. the car? No, no, that was the week before. Last oh. week was Harvard Business Review, Heather. Oh, yes. Yeah, sorry, yeah. I get my weeks muddled up. Yes, yeah. I think it's because I'm more excited about your car than you are. But yeah, carry on. <laughs> so I've 
I bought this book on the back of having read um, a fiction book by the same author. So the author is Matt Haig and the fiction book that I read was The Humans. So this is called Notes on a Nervous Planet. Now, it's not just me that says it's a good book. It was a, a Sunday Times bestseller. Um, and essentially, he's asking the question if the world is messing with the, our minds and is there something we can do about it? It's a very easy to read book. All the chapters are short, one, maybe two pages maximum, quite big print. It's very concisely written, lots of lists. And as somebody pointed out in a review, it's just right for an audience whose attention is being stretched painfully thin by 24-hour rolling news, smartphones, work, social media. And the premise of the book is that modern life, combined with the increasing pace of change, is doing damage to our mental health. And it looks at sleep, news, social media, addiction, work and play. And he, he it's not like um, a smug self-help book. That's what he says. It's not smug. He says himself, I'm not doing this completely right. And Matt has had his own mental health issues, which he's very open about in all of his writing. But he's just hoping that maybe some of the ideas in the book could help you to change the way you spend your time on earth, which seems like a very worthy cause to me. And I think in the light of um, the discussions we've had about people struggling to maybe go back to work or rethinking and reevaluating their lives and their careers, this book might be just the right thing for them at the moment, particularly with things like you know, the rolling news and the, the ramping up of fear from the news and social media and all of that. And there's just some really simple ideas there as to how you can perhaps break those habits of the digital age. So I would highly recommend Notes on a Nervous Planet by Matt Haig. Excellent. Well, my discovery this week is not what I was going to discover. But I happened upon it, so I'm say I'm doing the opposite of you. So I'm saving, um, I'm, I'm saving this week's for, for next week. But but what I found, I was on the um, the gov.uk website, and there was a press release, and it, it, the title was "Thousands of Business Advisors to Offer Free Services to Small Firms." Uh, and this was dated the 9th of July. So I thought, okay, this is this is very relevant. Essentially, what's happened? Um, various um, professional and business services advisors have signed up to offer free online advice to help small businesses bounce back from coronavirus and so i thought okay i'll have a look at that and the the recovery advice for business scheme is supported by the government but it's hosted by a, a website that we have talked about in the past which is enterprise nation so i thought okay i will go and have a look they're saying that um, small firms can have access to free one-to-one -one advice with an expert advisor to help them through the pandemic and to prepare for long-term recovery and it, it is now live so I popped along to the Enterprise Nation website and signed myself in and reminded myself of what a great website it is and how many fantastic articles and resources there are on there but you know what it's like you can't be everywhere you can't there's so many places to be checking in but I thought right I'll answer the questionnaire and see you know what the process is like so essentially it asks you some basic details about you know um 
what what legal entity you are um how many staff you've got what your turnover is uh, and and it's not just for, for large organizations you know the turnover can be naught to ten thousand pounds you know so it's not like oh are you are you five hundred thousand tops or whatever you can be a micro business it asked about um finances so do you need some support with access to funding or making sure that you're on the right track or you've applied for funding and not um, not qualified and don't know where else to go it talks about marketing and it talks about um, whether you've identified new routes to market or you've you've pivoted in some way shape or form and but you're not quite sure what to do about it so you can sort of you know strongly agree disagree and, and all things in between um, it talks about your staff and whether they need upskilling and you answer you answer all of these questions and then it it gives you your your results and then you can click to book a one-to-one -one with somebody who can help you in that particular area or you can read various articles find out more information on relevant things that would be relevant based on the answers to your questions so free to do free to be able to access um support uh and really easy to go through not at all onerous and not um you know sometimes i come across these things being being a, you know, a micro business and you think oh they're going to ask me all sorts of questions and it's just going to be you know they'll just be like oh no you're not big enough you know to bother with but it you didn't feel like that at all it seems like that there is a, ge a genuine desire to offer support uh, professional support to small businesses so i'll put a link to um to that article on the on the gov.uk website and also uh, a link to enterprise nation just to remind you of how brilliant it is in terms of resources so those uh, they, that's my discovery for this week um, make sure that uh, you pop along to our website and click on any of the links and if you are interested in getting a copy of Tracy's book, not Tracy's book, the book that Tracy has discovered, written by Matt Hay, <laughs> well, there'll be a little link on there. And if you did decide to buy, then we get a few coppers to throw into the pot to help us keep the podcast and the website live. This week's profile is not of one person. You could almost argue that it's not of two people it's like a whole dynasty uh, my husband and i were having a conversation the other day about uh footballers and how they earn their money and in particular how they earn their money once they've stopped playing football and i could understand to a point you know the whole if you wear nike or if you wear this or if you wear that or if you model for burberry there will be payments but I was like, well, how lucrative can that actually be? And then we had the conversation about why are newspapers, why are footballers paid weekly wages? You know, why do we say his wage is this? So it started a whole conversation. And I, I said to Tracy, well, I think we should look at the Beckhams. I think we should look at how they have brought together their reputations, their skills, their knowledge. Um, and how they've built this this brand that we all just accept as you know they're two of the beautiful people and they're worth an awful lot of money 
oh my goodness what a can of worms i almost wish that i hadn't suggested it because <laughs> i thought i know what i'll do I'll, I'll nip along to company's house and it'll all start to make sense tracy explain it all to me because it's far too much for me to get my head around well i'm not sure i can get it completely right but i have done a little bit of research to try and understand quite where um, the wealth has come from you are quite right it has been look lucrative for them both um, last year there were reports that they were worth a billion us dollars and that's a combination of victoria beckham's work and uh, david's endorsement deals and other enterprises that they're involved in and there are many so we've got the spice girls um ownership of football clubs as houses worth millions of pounds and it does seem that under their management with um, business partner Simon Fuller they've actually paid off a lot of the business decisions so um, you know even, even property deals have actually filled the coffers a little bit more. Now Simon Fuller, I mentioned him, um, he is a business partner for the Beckhams, he was the former manager for the Spice Girls and apparently back in 1995 he is reported as saying that Victoria's glamour and David's sex appeal and sporting prowess could, over the long term, create a billion dollar brand. Well, he's right. And I bet he's glad he joined um, in <laughs> partnership with them. So looking at Companies House, I agree it's a little bit mind blowing. You've got a massive long list of companies and clearly there are holding companies and that there's companies that have started and finished and companies to do with football, companies to do with branding, companies to do with retail. And um, Victoria and David seem to be on each other's um, board of directors as well. So it's a little bit confusing there. I didn't delve too deeply into the individual ones. I found a quick overview. So you're right, David Beckham's made most of his money since he stopped playing football. And a lot of that has been through brand endorsements. So you'll, re you'll remember H&M, um, um, Tudor Watches, Hay Club Whiskey. Um, he's been involved with Breitling, Sainsbury's, Armani, Gillette, AIA Group, Pepsi and Adidas. Um, so a company called Seven Global has apparently created around the lifestyle products in partnership with the Global Brands Group and footwork productions take care of the beckham's uh, david i think name and image rights and they all come un under the umbrella of db ventures which is apparently the overarching company company responsible for licensing and other forms of commercialization of the david beckham brand so then the parent company is beckham brand holdings limited Wow. So I, I think the accounts there are quite complicated. But one thing I did discover from Companies House is that dividends paid from that umbrella company, DB Ventures, to their directors, they paid dividends in 2018 of 11.1 million and 2017 of 18.75 million. But in a note in the account, it says that a further 14.5 million has been paid since the 2018 year end to the date that the accounts were filed. So clearly quite sizable income from DB Ventures there for the family. So 
I, I think it might be a complete nightmare to work your way through all of that. But safe to say, they're not doing badly financially. And I was quite pleased to be able to engage in a little bit of property porn this week and I was looking through photographs of some of their own uh, property that they own around the world and some of it is absolutely glorious well most all of it come on be honest all of the property is absolutely stunning and it, it, it's worth a lot of money in itself so yeah I don't know if that completely explains where all the money's come from. I'm sure it would take a, a smarter accounting mind than mine to be able to work that one out. But hopefully a bit of an overview, Heather. Well, yeah, absolutely. And Simon Fuller knows which side his bread is buttered. I mean, I'm sure that he was, you know, thrilled to bits to be involved with the Spice Girls and then went on to manage all, you know, all sorts of people, Bradley Wiggins, um, Amy Winehouse, Kelly Clarkson, he's worth £455 million uh, pounds sterling, according to the Sunday Times Rich List, and in 2007 was named one of the 100 most influential people in the world. So I think if you upset Simon Fuller, um, you're going to feel it in your back pocket. But uh, the, yeah, I started to get my head around, okay, it's, it's complicated their wealth is complicated and making sure that you know they they obviously stream silo various strands of their their brand etc but it still kept, i still kept coming back to the whole yeah, but why do footballers earn so much money and believe it or not there was an interesting article on the bank of england website not the first place and, and the heading was I, I had typed in why are footballers paid so much and this is what came up the world's, um, I couldn't get a date on this article, but I think he may still be the world's best paid footballer, which is Lionel Messi. And he earns over seven million pounds a month. Wow. And that is 600 times the salary of the prime minister. So the, um, the Bank of Lincoln, England go on to explain that it's about supply and demand. And really really talented footballers are few and far between and they are really really talented and at the peak of fitness for a relatively short period of time so uh, so money is at a premium so they've got this quite interesting infographic where they say that a bar worker um this is data from the ons a bar worker would earn 300 pounds a week a nurse 630 a train driver, 1,030, the Prime Minister, 2,900, and a Premier League football player, 50,800. <laughs> All right, so, and now I don't know if that's because bar workers are two a penny and, the, and, the, and on these ratios, maybe the, you know, maybe Prime Ministers are, but it certainly goes to demonstrate how um, rare a Premier League football player is in the grand scheme of things not you know not everybody can be one perhaps more people can be a prime minister and then they go to talk about why prices have gone up so much so um in in 1992 to 1997 premier league um tv income was 191 million and in 2016 to 19 premier league tv income was 5.13 billion so the tv rights have become massive 
that that accessibility never mind ticket sales at the gate etc so it's actually really really quite complicated but then a lovely little another little website that i found that i'd never been to before wageindicator.co.uk and i think the point of the um, the website is that you could actually do a bit of a an earning comparison uh, on you know what what does a gp earn or what does a train drive earn but um they've got a vip celebrity section so i thought i'd have a little nosy in there <laughs> so prince william his royal highness prince william um his annual earnings are one million six hundred and seventy six thousand pounds then um poor old nigel farage he's only on four hundred thousand but phil collins is on 35,657,597 pounds. Yeah. He earns almost three million pounds a month. 137,000 pounds a day. <laughs> I have spent ages just looking around and he doesn't do anything anymore, does he? No, I, well, I think that's... Um, something Sorry? that Maria's advisors should advise more. That's right hit songs yeah right yeah and and just be realistic you know this is exceptional this is exceptional lionel messi um earns 82 million three hundred and ninety thousand pounds a year three hundred and sixteen thousand pound a day do you see i could go on forever i was gonna say it's you could go on money. forever but we've got to the end of the show heather <laughs> So, yeah, so on that note, I think we better say goodbye. Otherwise, Heather will keep you here for another hour just going through the <laughs> website. You've been listening to The Business Community with me, Heather Noble. And me, Tracy Jones. Join us next week for more news, views and reviews from the world of business.